is the philosophy junkie and i welcome you today to philosophize alongside me if you end up liking this episode or any other episode on this podcast check out our website link down below you can find summaries and even transcripts for each and every show there and also a link to support us visit us on instagram and twitter @thephilosophyjunkie and @thephiljunkie Furthermore, if you're feeling generous today, you can visit our page on patreon.com/thephilosophyjunkie and consider donating money for some additional content. Just a disclaimer before we begin though. I would recommend you bear in mind that our journey won't be one of name dropping, but rather be focused on thoughts, ideologies and beliefs. We will focus more on the what rather than the who of things. Thank you for choosing this podcast to fill your time of the day today, and I really hope you enjoy the show hey everyone i have an episode for you today that's well about everyone it always has been and it always will be about everyone when the topic of discussion is karl marx now marx is probably the philosopher to talk about and so i would find it cruel if i were to explain marx alone and without a bit of fun to it we have a guest on the show who has been researching marxism and socialism since the inception of their career My guest today is a professor at the Westminster School of Media and Communication. Dr. Christian Fuchs has been a renowned name in the world of internet and society. He runs his own open access journal Triple C, Communication, Capitalism and Critique and a podcast under the same name. I'm going to be honest, his opening music for the podcast is much better than mine. I can go on and on about his achievements and his knowledge on topics relating to social media, political economies, etc. But I think a simple Google search would tell you much more. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, Professor Fuchs, and I apologize for cutting the introduction short. No problem. Thank you for inviting me. So, we celebrated the 200th anniversary of Frederick Engels about a month or so ago, and he came back into the podcast game with a very comprehensive episode on angles and i think it, that's an episode that i really enjoyed so can you talk about exactly what role angles played so we we'll talk about marx later but what role did angles play uh, in the rise of communism in various parts of europe in the 19th century yeah so without uh, angles there would be no marx yeah so marx and angles uh, really uh, belong together yeah in several uh respects yeah so they worked together so it was an intellectual uh, relationship uh and they authored several works uh, together of course the most well known uh, of the co uh, authored works is the communist uh, manifesto which is probably besides capital uh, marx uh most uh, lasting uh contribution uh, to socialist uh theory uh they also uh, wrote other works together such as the german uh, ideology the holy family uh, and uh, so on yeah uh engels uh, was ca- uh, coming out of uh in uh, a family uh that uh was uh, in the cotton uh, industry they owned factories uh, in germany uh, and uh, in manchester in the united kingdom uh, and engels followed in his father's uh, footsteps uh, and uh, was running the company in manchester earning some money by it uh, so he was able to fund uh, marx's life yeah because marx was earning some money from being a journalist but it was not enough for uh, surviving uh, and of course he was not a university professor yeah because contemporary 
contemporary academia in uh, 19th uh, century, uh, there was no uh, space uh, for his radical uh, thought because it was very conservative uh, in uh, nature. So Engels also funded uh, Marx's uh, life uh, and work uh, and uh, and uh, and uh, and works. Uh, and uh, there would also be no be no uh, Marx without uh, Engels uh, in respect that uh, after Marx died, uh, he left uh, works that were unfinished. Yeah? Uh, lots of manuscripts, uh, especially for Capital Volume Two and Volume Three. Uh, and Engels worked through these uh, manuscripts uh, and uh, compiled what we uh, is nowadays capital volume two uh, and three. Uh, beyond that, uh, Engels made very significant uh, contributions uh, to uh, to a critical political uh, economy uh, himself. Yes, yeah? so what we call critical political economy uh, today, and what Marx called critical political economy, actually goes back uh, to uh, to. Uh, uh, to, uh, to 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 Engels uh, and uh, an essay that Engel uh, wrote uh, in the mid eighteen forties on the uh, foundations uh, of uh, political uh, economy, where he was engaging with uh, classical political economists like uh, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, uh, and so on, and was criticizing uh, their work and. Marx in his later works, yeah, also uh, in Capital, was again and again coming back uh, to these uh, works. Yeah. In my opinion, the most lasting contribution to uh, radical theory uh, by uh, Engels uh, is uh, his book from the uh, 1840s, uh, The Condition of the Working Class uh, in England. Yeah. Uh, so traveling to Manchester, Engels uh, observed the terrible conditions uh, the members of the working class uh, were facing uh, in different kinds of uh, industries. He also traveled around uh, the country and he did a, a social science study, you could say, yeah, where he used methods such as interviewing, uh, observation. Uh, he was uh, looking up uh, reports uh, that were studying the working conditions uh, back then, and he was compiling this then into a comprehensive uh, book uh, that criticized how uh, capitalism uh, brought about uh, terrible working conditions uh, for the members of the working class uh, via uh, the uh, exploitation uh, of uh, of uh, labor. And also, uh, I mean, you could say Engels was uh, a, uh, an early pioneer of critical uh, social uh, science uh, and critical uh, theory, uh, political uh, economy. Uh, and so I think if, uh, I mean, if the listeners to this podcast, if you just want to pick up one book uh, by uh, Engels and read uh, into it, then have a look uh, at this book, yeah, The Condition of the Working Class uh, in England. So I think Engels still, uh, and I think Engels also still uh, matters uh, today in many uh, respects, because also in the 21st century, of course, capitalism uh, has not gone away. It's still around. I mean, it has changed. Maybe it's now a uh, digital uh, capitalism. Yeah, it's a crisis uh, cap uh, capitalism, uh, but there is still uh, a working class. Yeah, uh, and uh, so, for example, if we uh, if we think about uh, our mobile phones, yeah, uh, and how they are manufactured, uh, then there are uh, workers in China uh, to uh, where the where the assemblage uh, of mobile phones and laptops uh, and other hardware uh, is outsourced. I mean, this is known uh, as the terrible working conditions uh, in factories uh, run by companies uh, such, such as uh, Foxconn or Pegatron. Uh, and the, the working conditions uh, that are documented by organizations such as uh, Students uh, and Scholars Against Corporate uh, 
misbehavior. Uh, they, they do undercover research uh, and have published several uh, reports uh, about uh, the horrible working conditions. I mean, where the workers have to, to work very uh, long uh, hours. Uh, they have, uh, have uh, low wages. Yeah, there's military drill uh, and uh, so on. And uh, there were workers, young workers, who committed suicide by jumping uh, from the factories because they could not stand the terrible working conditions. Yeah, and I mean, this is uh, industrializing uh, China. Yeah. Uh, in the 21st century, uh, which, however, is at the heart uh, of the digital uh, economy, yeah? because without the exploitation of these young Chinese workers, there would be uh, no iPhone, basically. Yeah? Uh, so the iPhone is built uh, on the blood and sweat uh, of Chinese uh, workers. And, of course, uh, uh, the company that benefits from it uh, is Apple. Yeah? And the iPhone uh, is quite expensive, actually, yeah? uh, and about uh, roughly two, six, between 60 or a bit more than uh, up to two-thirds uh, of the price uh, of an iPhone is the profit that Apple uh, is making, yeah? whereas the, the wages uh, of these workers are very low. And if you compare now uh, the working conditions uh, of these Foxconn workers yeah, to the working conditions that Engels was describing in uh, industrializing Britain uh, in the 19th uh, century, then you will find uh, many uh, parallels, yeah? uh, which shows that uh, Engels' uh, analysis, and also Marx' analysis, uh, is not outdated, uh, but still can tell us something and can inform our critical analysis and can inform working class struggles also in the 21st century. So a fun thing to note here, and at least something that comes to my mind right now, is that if you look at it right now, we're living in, a, in an age where industrial revolution has led to a digital revolution, where instead of now making commodities, we're more focused towards making software and hardware that will go in our computers or various other devices ranging from phones to iPads or tablets, etc. And these particular so when Engels was there you talked about Manchester which was where cotton was popularized and it was the industrial revolution in Britain itself took place from there and so now we're seeing this new digital revolution taking place where instead of ma manufacturing as I said commodities you're now ma manufacturing hardware and so you can see a similar scenario stirring up where you would require these workers to rise up against form unions against their uh, the now digital bourgeoisie so to speak and fight against what's been happening because it's not only china if you think about it now i've been reading about apple's policies regarding its workers and so in india where i live there have been various cases where where apple opened uh, recently opened a fa manufacturing plant down in the south and uh, workers had to go on a strike because they were being paid less and the prices of the commodities in india given by apple haven't gone down so the price is the same even though we're not paying those huge uh import fees but the workers are being paid less so all of that money is basically just going to the corporation it's just fattening up their pockets so th that revolution that happened or at least the notion of a revolution rising up stirring up within the people uh during that time in the in the 18th or 19th century is very similar to something that's been happening right now but i would like to focus more on not not the physicality of it so we we know that physical labor has been it's not just digital uh digital conglomerates that have been exploiting these people because when you look at cloth manufacturers as well 
they have been exploiting people in south asia for a very long time and they are currently they are probably the highest exploiters of these people so that's that's one thing but what i want to focus on right now is this digital bourgeoisie not not um manufacturers of mobile phones rather but manufacturer manufacturers of internet content today and how they have been manipulating or rather generating content and handling the content that we as users produce in order to make sure that their needs are met and their vested interests are taken care of in the long run so what if a revolution of a social media revolution as you as you talk about in your book as well what if such a revolution were to occur today and what if the people were to rise to the occasion not workers but people who are using social media for example facebook uh you have twitter you have instagram etc then you also have things like amazon which we'll get to but these particular these especially these two platforms because now facebook owns instagram so what what happens when people who are using people like you and i who are regular users of facebook and instagram uh, and twitter who rise up against this uh, data manipulation this controlling of content and decentralizing our a voice to make sure that no voice is particularly heard at a very large level and nobody is able to make much impact even though they are thinking that they are making impact so wh- how how can this be considered a revolution or how can people rise to the occasion right now to fight against uh conglomerates like facebook or twitter yes i think we have to be careful with the notion of revolution eh? because bourgeois thinkers talk about technological revolution such as the industrial revolution yeah or the uh computing revolution uh in uh, the contemporary uh, age uh, and they uh take a technological determinist position they somehow assume uh, that the uh this is a technological revolution spring about an entirely new society and this has led uh, among uh, neoliberal bourgeois uh, thinkers uh, and uh, intellectuals to assume that computing has resulted in a new society that they call the network society information society digital society and often they deny that there is exploitation that we live in a capitalist and class uh, society so that's the danger on the other hand if you look to uh, activism and how it has been described for example the various uh, occupy movements then various observers have described it uh, as a social media revolution a twitter revolution or a facebook uh, rebellion which is also technological deterministic because in the end uh, the these uh, protest movements uh, are people coming together protesting uh, for uh, the, for social uh, equality yeah, and against uh, social uh, inequalities uh, and they do so by also coming physically together yeah and they use whatever communication technologies there are uh, av- available yeah so we have to be careful uh, i don't think that there are technological revolutions yeah so new technologies uh, be it the power loom uh, in the 19th century yeah or at the computer in the 20th century or social media and uh, big data driven uh, automation in the 21st century they don't come about because they are great inventors or be, uh, or their chance uh, inventions they come about because there is a need for it uh, within uh, capitalism to increase uh, productivity uh, and to find new forms uh, of uh, the exploitation uh, of labor yeah so technological innovations are themselves are uh, driven by the needs 
uh, of uh, capital. And when there, when there are new industries emerging, such as uh, the digital uh, industry yeah, uh, in the late 20th century and up until uh, today, well, then also new factions of the bourgeoisie uh, emerge. Yeah? And I mean, you, you were using uh, the term uh, digital bourgeoisie. I think the digital bourgeoisie, well, these are the owners of the big platforms that we uh, have today. Yeah, The CEOs and the shareholders uh, of uh, Google, uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, Uber, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and so on. Uh, and they make lots of money. They make lots uh, of uh, profits. And, wherever they, and they, are, they sell different types of uh, commodities. And wherever there is a commodity, uh, there is also a working class that produces uh, these uh, commodities. And your specific question was now, how could class struggles uh, by the working class look like in the 21st uh, century. Yeah, uh, So I think they uh, partly they look the same as in the 20th century, but partly they have to take uh, on uh, new forms, yeah? uh, which has to do with the, uh, with the fact uh, that, uh, that uh, the working class has been uh, transformed, has been uh, extended, yeah? has turned uh, into a kind of social and societal uh, working class. So maybe I'll focus on, uh, on uh, two uh, examples. Let's take... Uber is one uh, example, and then we take uh, Facebook uh, as the second example. How could struggles against uh, how do struggles against Uber uh, and Facebook uh, actually uh, look like? Yeah. So with Uber, yeah, you know, it's taxi drivers, and they use uh, the app that is owned by uh, by uh, by Uber. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, there's a peculiarity of uh, of uh, Uber workers because they work as freelancers. So formally speaking, uh, they are self-employed, and there were legal cases uh, where uh, also in the UK, for example, where Uber lost, where the question was, uh, can uh, the Uber drivers be legally considered uh, as workers? Yeah? Uh, and Uber was saying no, uh, but uh, the unions organizing the Uber workers were saying yes uh, and uh, the, uh, the uh, court uh, in the UK uh, was uh, then uh, saying well uh, the argument by the trade union uh, is right and uh, the Uber drivers must be considered uh, legally as workers yeah? which also means that they have uh, certain uh, rights uh, such as holiday payments uh, and so on. Yeah? However Uber uh, was uh, contesting the legal decision. Uh, it is in different uh, instances, actually, uh, and uh, it's an ongoing uh, legal uh, battle. Yeah, uh, but I mean, how how I think surplus value production actually uh, works there uh, is that well, the freelancers, uh, the uh, the Uber uh, drivers, yeah, there's a taxi ride. Yeah, there's a customer paying a certain uh, a certain. Uh, a, 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 a amount. So the commodity uh, is the taxi ride. Yeah. Uh, however, the, uh, there's a customer. Now the question is, who's the capitalist and who's the who's the worker? I think the taxi driver is the worker here. Yeah. Uh, because he's doing the the actual driving. Person uh, A goes from uh, position B to position uh, C. Yeah. So that's the work that is being uh, performed. Uh, but the means the means of productions are the car. And uh, the app, yeah, uh, and the app uh, is owned by Uber, uh, and uh, so it's a, it's a, it's a capital, yeah. Uh, and Uber charges a certain percentage share, like around twenty uh, percent uh, of this ride, uh, 
uh, that uh, it automatically uh, collects from the Uber uh, driver. Yeah, so I think the class relation here is one between uh, the Uber driver uh, and uh, the platform. Yeah, uh, Uber, uh, so Uber is a kind of platform capitalist uh, company. But this phenomenon of the, I mean, of the freelancers, of the digital freelancers, yeah, that's uh, a, a new phenomenon. Yeah, uh, and uh, of course, I mean the uh, the problem that Uber workers have are the low wages. They are precarious uh, wor uh, 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 workers uh, who uh, barely. Uh, earn the minimum uh, wage. So now the question is, how uh, should Uber workers, or for example, uh, Uber drivers, or for example, also delivery drivers, yeah, how can they organize? Yeah, how can they form uh, a, a union or a movement that struggles uh, against uh, against uh, Uber and uh, the platform? Uh, 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 capitalists, yeah. So now it, you could say there could be a classical strike, yeah, uh, because the capital. Uh, if they do a classical strike, which Uber drivers uh, have done, then I mean, of course, the 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 harm uh, the uh, profits uh, of Uber. However, at the same time, uh, they also harm themselves because they no longer have uh, any uh, any uh, income. So I don't think this is the smartest uh, strategy. I think a smarter strategy is to form digital trade unions, I mean, this does not exist really, yeah? because, uh, I mean, where, where digital workers are organized uh, with, uh, in unions, mostly they, are, uh, they, are, they become part of already existing unions uh, and branches. Yeah? So uh, Uber drivers normally are part uh, of uh, unions that, uh, that represent uh, drivers. Yeah? However, I think there should be digital workers unions yeah, that uh, involve different types of digital workers. Yeah? I mean, the Uber workers, just like the software engineers. Yeah? And what would then, I mean, what would be the goal actually is that, I mean, that's part of, uh, of socialist strategies. I mean, you know how Marx and Engels define socialism uh, is that there is the collective ownership of the means of production by the working class, which would mean that actually uh, the, 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 the platform, which is in this case the algorithm uh, that, uh, that allows the location, uh, the, the allocation of, uh, of customers to, to, uh, to, uh, to drivers, uh, would be taken over by uh, the workers. They can, however, not simply hack the algorithm or this platform because, of course, it's encrypted uh, and uh, encoded. So that's difficult. Yeah? I mean, it would be a strategy that they have union hackers trying to hack the algorithm, but I think uh, that's too difficult and it will not uh, actually work. But I think if they have a union yeah, uh, where they also have software engineers uh, in it that are unionized, uh, then uh, the union could develop its own app uh, that the taxi drivers could uh, could uh, could use, yeah. Uh, so a union-owned uh, app, uh, app uh, and, al and and algorithm. And when uh, taxi drivers, let's say, let's say there's a global strike. Uh, I mean, we know that uh, Uber pays uh, low uh, low wages, yeah, and the the share of profits is very high that they are making. Uh, and uh, the there's not uh, an, an, a minimum wage or an, an, an hourly wage because they are peace workers, so to speak. I mean, Marx was saying uh, in Capital Volume 1 that peace work is an extreme form uh, of uh, exploitation, very high exploitation uh, rates because you have no guarantee of an, uh, of an hourly income. Yeah? Uh, so, uh, so, so if you 
uh, don't have any customers, but you're still sitting in the taxi waiting, yeah, and it's your work time. Well, you have zero income actually, yeah? and that uh, and that that is only uh, a payment uh, if the, if there are customers. Uh, this out is a kind of outsourcing of labor to the uh, freelancers. It benefits the company uh, Uber in this case uh, and uh, its uh, profits. Yeah, I mean, and let's say there is a, a global demand of the Uber workers for uh, a minimum wage of 15 US dollars uh, per hour yeah they want to have an hourly wage how can they uh, how can they uh, ad advance this uh, demand yeah so i think they first they would have to unionize in a global digital labor trade union uh, the trade union the digital labor union should uh, uh, should Uh, develop its own app, yeah. Uh, that uh, is an alternative uh, app, yeah. Uh, that is owned by uh, the workers uh, and uh, the the union. And when they then make their demand for a fifty uh, dollar uh, minimum wage per hour, when they make this demand to uh, Uber and other uh, kind of uh, of, uh, of of taxi app uh, platforms, uh, they would go on strike. And when they go on strike, they simply uh, say, well, for the next three weeks or one month, we will not drive with the Uber app because we are on strike. However, we uh, so we are uh, refusing to work for Uber. However, they do this by still continuing to drive, but they will put uh, into their taxis uh, the uh, union uh, and uh, worker-owned app and will use uh, this app, actually. Yeah. So then, uh, And will then collectively uh, share uh, the uh, income uh, and well, it can be run on a non-profit uh, basis uh, and so on. And this will uh, put pressure on Uber because during this phase, I mean, if all Uber workers in the world would go on strike collectively at the same time, yeah, in all... Uh, large uh, cities, uh, metropolises uh, in the world where, uh, where we have Uber drivers. Yeah, then the income of Uber suddenly would be zero yeah, uh, for several weeks. Yeah? So this would be real pressure that could be uh, put, uh, put, uh, put on. Yeah? I mean, and I think the point here is that, that working class struggles then work a bit different in the 21st uh, century. It's probably more complex yeah? because here the, uh, the union uh, would need its own software engineers yeah? developing uh, the, uh, these uh, alternative uh, apps that are collectively uh, owned yeah? as a collective means uh, of production. And it also it requires a kind of, uh, of, uh, of Uh, trade union convergence. So it's unfortunately uh, trade unions are, are nowadays organized by industries. Yeah, but the digital cuts across industries. Yeah, uh, so there are digital workers in an international division of labor uh, that uh, whose work is related uh, to uh, each other. Which means they, when they collectively organize and make demands, they all need to come together and collectively uh, organize. You know, so just like. Uh, Marx and Engels uh, ended uh, the Common Communist Manifesto by writing that uh, the proletarians uh, of all lands should unite. Uh, I think in a, in, in a digital labor struggle, in a digital uh, strike, uh, the digital workers uh, of uh, all uh, lands, of uh, all countries, of all cities worldwide uh, have to unite uh, in a trade union uh, and in, uh, in, a, in, in, a, uh, in a class struggle uh, movement uh, in order to advance 
advance their uh, demands. And I think they should make quite concrete uh, demands, uh, such as uh, an hourly uh, wage uh, and uh, and uh, and uh, and so on. Yeah. Or in in some countries where uh, Uber uh, workers or delivery drive uh, drivers uh, and similar workers uh, started uh, to become uh, unionized, it was around specific. Uh, demands. Yeah? So, for, exa for example, uh, the delivery uh, uh, drivers and similar uh, uh, plat plat uh, platforms, uh, in most cases, they do not uh, cover costs for uh, equipment. Yeah? I mean, they, uh, the, uh, the drivers, they need to repair uh, their bikes, yeah? they need uh, special uh, protective uh, gear uh, and so on, uh, and that's uh, not covered by uh, by the by the platforms. And they were starting to unionize by coming together uh, and saying, "Well, we want to have these uh, costs uh, uh, covered." So it can be around very specific uh, demands that uh, that uh, that uh, that uh, can be uh, made. Uh, but uh, in the digital industries, I mean, it sounds so great. Uh, digital workers start to unionize. Uh, the problem that we have in digital uh, industries classically is uh, that there is a very low rate uh, of unionization. Yeah, uh, especially for example in the software industry, it's a very very low unionization rates, uh, which has to do with the kind of digital ideology, yeah, uh, the digital, or what Richard Barbrook calls the Californian uh, ideology uh, that uh, runs through, I mean, that shapes the consciousness uh, of people working uh, and, uh, in, uh, in, in, in digital uh, industries. Yeah? Uh, so typically, many digital workers think of themselves as being entrepreneurs and not workers. Yeah? And Quite a lot of them uh, have a consciousness that more resembles the consciousness of a manager and does, it does not resemble working class uh, consciousness. Yeah? Uh, and that's the basic problem and that stands in the way uh, of unionization. Yeah? And also uh, many digital workers are very isolated. They don't meet the freelancers, digital freelancers, for example, they don't meet other workers. But of course, meeting other workers is the, the first starting point. Uh, for talking about well, how are your working conditions, and for uh, for uh, coming together uh, and trying to uh, politically uh, and uh, collectively uh, organize. Yeah? So a solution for that can could be, for example, for freelancers. Uh, co-working spaces that are operated by digital uh, trade unions and are, uh, are offered uh, to digital workers for free or for a very uh, low uh, very low uh, fee yeah uh, of course i mean these uh, digital companies uh, capitalism is crisis prone yeah so uh, sooner or later uh, also uh, digital industries are affected the digital industry is affected by a crisis and then it starts laying off uh, workers. So when uh, workers uh, experience uh, that uh, companies, well, suddenly are kicking out hundreds or thousands uh, of workers, I think then also their consciousness can change and uh, and uh, they might have the idea of, well, uh, it might have been better that we uh, actually uh, form uh, a trade union. But sometimes it's too, it's, uh, it's, uh, too late, uh, of course. So it's, I mean, it's a question of, of, uh, of, uh, of political uh, potentials uh, to uh, to it's a question of political potentials to uh, to uh, to politically organize, but then it's also a question uh, of consciousness. Yeah. And let me move to my second example. How would a strike uh, against Facebook uh, or YouTube or Twitter uh, actually 
uh, look like. So here we have to do with another commodity. Yeah? So that, uh, the digital industry and digital capitalism is very complex. Uh, there is not simply one uh, capital accumulation model or what in uh, bourgeois economics is called a business model. Yeah? Uh, there are uh, lots of different uh, capital accumulation models uh, in uh, the digital uh, industry. But of course, Google uh, and Facebook uh, are uh, among the world's largest companies and also among the largest companies in the digital uh, sector. And it's not evident what kind of commodity that they are selling yeah? because you go to Google uh, and you search for something, you go to uh, Facebook and you post something on your profile, you don't pay for that. Yeah, So the, using the platform itself and access to it is not a commodity. Uh, but, uh, ever, uh, what is the commodity here is advertising. Yeah? So uh, Google and Facebook are the world's largest advertising agencies and they sell targeted uh, advertisements that are powered by the data and the content that users constantly uh, produce. Yeah? So the data... Uh, that uh, users produce yeah? and the metadata and the content uh, is a kind is part of the means of uh, production uh, that uh, is being used for targeted uh, targeting uh, advertisements uh, according uh, to the interests browsing behaviors uh, and so on uh, of uh, the users yeah and in order to understand the political economy of Facebook and Google I, I mean my work uh, using uh, the, uh, the theoretical approach uh, of the Marxist political economist of communication, Della Smythe. Yeah? Della Smythe was a, a US-Canadian uh, economist uh, and a media studies scholar. Uh, in North America, you could say that he really uh, was involved in founding the field uh, of the political, what is today called the political uh, economy of communication. Uh, and uh, at the University of Urbana-Champaign, I think where you are actually located, uh, Della Smythe was in the late 1940s teaching the very first class uh, on the political economy of communication. And uh, Smythe uh, advanced uh, the idea uh, of, or advanced an approach of how to think about the political economy of advertising. Yeah, and he was, of course, I mean, was is uh, wrote the famous article yeah, uh, called uh, "Blind Spots of Western Marxism." Yeah, uh, so he was arguing Marxist theory did not properly understand how the political economy of advertising works. And uh, in this article, he points out uh, the argument that uh, in advertising-funded media, and this applies only to advertising-funded media, uh, the audience uh, becomes uh, the working class. Yeah, so he says viewing and watching advertised-funded television uh, or radio is a form of labor, he speaks of the audience labor, that produces an audience commodity. So the audience commodity uh, means, I mean, it's evident in the fact that uh, the more viewers you have uh, on a commercial radio or television uh, program, yeah, uh, the higher the value of the ads that you can sell. Yeah? Uh, if you have, uh, I don't know, 10 million viewers at uh, prime time uh, on a television uh, program, uh, that's quite a lot, yeah? uh, then you can charge very high uh, advertising uh, rates. Yeah? And my argument uh, is that uh, the audience is sold as a commodity to uh, the advertisers. Now, on social media, something similar is happening with Google uh, and Facebook. They are also uh, advertising-funded uh, uh, corporations, among the largest uh, corporations in the world, uh, the world's largest advertisers. Google and uh, Facebook together control about two-thirds uh, of the global uh, digital advertising uh, revenue, so uh, they uh, form a digital uh, monopoly, uh, in, a monopoly in digital uh, advertising. And now, 
using Smythe argument, we can say that the users of Google and Facebook become digital workers, unpaid digital workers who are exploited by Facebook and Google while they are using uh, the platforms. And what they create uh, is is data and content, uh, metadata, relational uh, data that is all stored forever by Google and Facebook. I mean, why Google and Facebook and other large platforms are developing all these server farms. The simple reason for it is that uh, they gather all data uh, about all of our behavior uh, online and they try to store it uh, forever. Why are they doing that? So it's mass surveillance, uh, you could say digital uh, surveillance. They use digital surveillance in order to be able to better target uh, advertisements and sell more and more and more uh, uh, advertisements. And of course, this model of digital advertising has come under criticism. Lots of, I mean, I did uh, myself uh, empirical studies with users. Uh, and when you ask uh, of, of social media, uh, and you always, when you ask users about what do you like about social media and what do you dislike, you always get actually the same answer. Yeah? They say, we really like the communication uh, and uh, community aspect of it. That is what makes it social. That's the use value. But they say, well, we have concerns about the surveillance that is going on and the privacy violations. Yeah, So users have really concerns about uh, these massive amounts of data that are used uh, and that are used for, on the one hand, economic surveillance and on the other hand, uh, also political surveillance. Because remember, like, uh, the uh, Edward Snowden scandal uh, and when uh, Edward Snowden was unveiling uh, that, uh, that also secret services uh, and the police have access to lots of data uh, on social media uh, platforms. Yeah, So that's one concern. Then there are concerns about monopoly power. There are concerns about these companies hardly paying uh, any uh, any uh, any uh, any uh, any taxes, but providing uh, very large uh, infrastructures uh, of uh, of uh, of uh, com- of uh, communication, and then uh, advertising. I mean, also has resulted in the Cambridge Analytica scandal, yeah, uh, where uh, the model, the advertising, the digital advertising model, uh, in the end uh, advanced. Well, you could call it digital fascism, yeah, and uh, right wing extremism uh, on uh, uh, online because these companies they just want to sell ads, yeah. But what happened in the uh, Cambridge Analytica scandal is that uh, right wing demagogues and their uh, companies gathered lots of uh, personal data about Facebook users uh, from Facebook users and then targeted uh, uh, political ads towards uh, users. Uh, that were containing uh, fake news, yeah, uh, that were supporting Donald Trump in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, uh, and so on. Yes, yeah? so you can see that uh, the lack of regulation of the digital economy, which is an effect of neoliberalism, leads to the exploitation of digital labor. But more than this, it results in massive privacy violations. It results in economic surveillance and in political surveillance. Uh, and uh, then, uh, I mean, then neoliberalism bites its own tail, you could say, yeah, because, uh, I mean, that's dialectic of the Enlightenment that Horkheimer and Adorno were speaking about, yeah, Horkheimer and Adorno were saying that uh, that the Enlightenment reason, uh, liberalism, uh, turns in a negative dialectic sooner or later against itself, yeah, uh, and the inequalities that capitalism produces 
can result uh, in the rise uh, of uh, fascism uh, as it did uh, in the 1930s uh, in uh, Germany. I think what we're experiencing today is that the logic of neoliberalism is also undergoing a negative dialectic and digital capitalism and digital advertising is embedded uh, into that. Uh, and uh, neoliberalism has created massive, massive inequalities uh, and has turned against itself. Uh, I mean, the, the liberalism of neoliberalism has created something that you could probably call uh, authoritarian capitalism. Yeah? Uh, and Donald Trump uh, is uh, one of uh, the leaders uh, of uh, a model of capitalism uh, that uh, is skewing towards, uh, towards uh, authoritarianism. But of, of course, he's not the own because uh, there are right-wing uh, demagogues uh, also in other countries uh, in the world. Yeah? So it's a big complex uh, of uh, problems. The question now would be, uh, I mean, what do you do against uh, issues such as uh, fake news advertisements? Yeah, I mean, there's a simple solution: ban all political advertising uh, on uh, social media, or ban all advertising uh, on social media. But of course, the companies wouldn't do that voluntarily. So in the end, it's a political question. We need socialist governments that want to properly regulate the social media uh, economy. And for example, in I mean, uh, in uh, in public service broadcasting uh, in European countries and also in, the in some European countries and uh, the United Kingdom, for example, uh, there is no political advertising yeah? uh, and uh, it's not allowed. Yeah? So it's forbidden by, uh, by, by law. Yeah? So regulating also uh, the uh, advertising industry uh, would be a, a solution. However, there is still the, I mean, the, the underlying problem really uh, is, the, is the digital labor uh, issue, the uh, class relation between digital labor and digital uh, capital. Yeah. So uh, the question is, uh, what can uh, users uh, do uh, in, as digital workers? How can they? Uh, how can they? Uh, organ how can they uh, organize? Yeah. Uh, so I, and I think there, uh, on the one hand, there are potentials for digital strike. On the other hand, there uh, are potentials for a, a conversion to uh, alternative. Uh, platforms. Yeah, uh, the digital strike would mean that users come together collectively and try uh, to organize uh, a specific strike where they say, for a specific time period, we are not using uh, uh, social media. Yeah, and uh, when they stop using social media, like for uh, let's say twenty-four hours, then uh, the, uh, Facebook and Google are also not making profits from advertisements. And of course, this should then be. Uh, associated with a specific uh, with specific uh, uh, demands, yeah. So, for example, I don't know. They could make the uh, uh, the demand that there should be better uh, that there should be, for example, be uh, no automatic use of targeted advertising, uh, but there should be an opt in to the use of advertising because that's another problem and users criticized that uh, also empirical studies show this that the terms of use of uh, these platforms are so complicated are very long yeah and you just have two options yes i agree or no i don't agree and if you say no then you cannot use uh, the platform but basically you are signing away uh, your privacy uh, with these terms of use and privacy statements because normally you agree that uh, facebook google and others can monitor all of your online behavior and can monetize it yeah now if users would for example demand you must change your privacy uh, agreements in, in terms of use in such a way that the standard uh, option is 
there is no advertising. You're not allowed to uh, use personal data uh, and store it uh, for uh, and, and commodify it for advertising purposes. And only if you go to the privacy settings and then you opt in, yeah, uh, then uh, then that's the option. Uh, then uh, then it's allowed uh, to do that. Yeah. So normally there is not. There is maybe some opt out. Yeah. Or no opt out uh, at, uh, at at all, but it's hidden and it's difficult uh, to uh, to uh, to uh, to uh, to achieve. Yeah, and of course, by, by digital strike, I mean users could put pressure uh, on uh, the platforms, but at the same time, they uh, should put pressure uh, on uh, policymakers. Yeah, because I mean, uh, it's not enough that Facebook and Google would do this voluntarily. Because probably they won't. Although, when the, uh, but uh, in the end, we need governments that are willing, uh, I mean, to stronger regulate uh, digital uh, capital, and for example, bring about such a, a, a different regulation, such as uh, a prohibition uh, of political uh, advertising. Uh, platforms are mandated uh, to use uh, an opt-in uh, to uh, targeted uh, advertising, where the standard option uh, is uh, is uh, is that you are opted out. Uh, and, uh, and and so on. Yeah, there's a very good book by uh, U.S. colleague uh, Oscar Gendi, yeah, uh, who was a professor of uh, political uh, of political economy of uh, communication uh, at uh, the Edinburgh School of Communication in uh, the University of Pennsylvania. And in the early 1990s, Oscar wrote a book called The Panoptic Sort, yeah, where he describes how uh, consumer capitalism. Uh, uh, results in uh, economic surveillance uh, of uh, consumers uh, and workers. Yeah? Uh, and he, uh, Oscar Gendi, argues the, uh, for this option yeah? uh, that to implement policies uh, and make the demand uh, that there should always be uh, an opt-in uh, to uh, how companies use consumer data. Yeah? So the, because you can think uh, beyond that, uh, not just in terms of social media. Lots of, uh, I mean, lots of companies collect lots of data about consumers. Yeah? Uh, that's uh, in order to uh, to make marketing campaigns, to run advertisements, uh, and so on. Yeah? Think, for example, of credit card companies that they are selling uh, the, uh, the purchase data, uh, consumer data, uh, and uh, so on. Uh, so a legally uh, binding uh, uh, stipulation that uh, the, uh, that companies uh, should always uh, the standard option should be that they are not allowed to use consumers and uh, internet users data for economic uh, purposes because nowadays the standard is that they can use it. So this and I mean the, the thing here is now these are like consumer protection issues on the one hand. Of course, we have classical consumer protection organizations yeah, everywhere uh, in the world. Yeah. But then these are issues of surveillance. Yeah? So we have also privacy advocates and pri privacy advocacy organizations. But then it's also an issue of digital labor. Yeah? So what we are seeing is that uh, the, 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 the realms of, uh, of political organizing or of, of political issues having to do with consumption, with privacy and with labor are converging. However, in the realm of NGOs and of political activism, the organizations representing different uh, human interests are separate. There are consumer protection organizations, there are trade unions, uh, the, and, uh, and, uh, and there are uh, uh, consumer protection organizations, privacy ad ad advocacy organizations. But uh, in terms of digital labor and digital capitalism, the interests uh, of the users and the consumers uh, and uh, 
uh, those about whom data is collected are converging. Yeah? So which would also actually mean that uh, labor unions, uh, consumer protection organizations uh, and privacy advocacy organizations would also have to converge in uh, digital labor uh, movements or digital uh, labor uh, unions. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think that there needs to be a broader network in order to, uh, to advance such, uh, de such uh, demands. However, Organizing, yeah, political organ grassroots political organizing is not enough, yeah, and to make demands, uh, it, it should be done, yeah, digital strikes, making demands for uh, for uh, for policies that uh, regulate uh, the, uh, the digital corporations and so on, yeah. But we also need alternatives, yeah. I mean, that would probably uh, be the, the revolutionary socialist strategy. Would in the end be uh, the demand to destroy Facebook and Google, yeah, uh, so that uh, they disappear, so that uh, that digital capitalism ceases to exist. But what would be the alternative? Yeah, I think the alternative uh, is a commons-based uh, digital economy uh, and a public service digital uh, economy. Yeah. Uh, so creating alternative platforms uh, is also a very important uh, model, yeah? and it's also a struggle for alternatives. Now, how could these alternatives look like? There are two models for it. Yeah? Uh, one uh, is the model uh, of platform cooperatives. The second one uh, is the model uh, of uh, a public service internet and public service internet uh, platforms. Let me start with the first model. I mean, this idea of and the uh, concepts and practices uh, of platform cooperatives uh, has become uh, quite popular uh, in the past uh, five to eight uh, years, mainly uh, because of uh, the activities and the various uh, conferences uh, that were organized uh, at the New School uh, in uh, New York by Trevor Schultz uh, and uh, Nathan uh, Schneider. Yeah, uh, they are very active uh, with this idea that uh, there could be alternatives that are owned and controlled and governed by the users who become workers. Yeah, I mean, it's the classical model of a cooperative. A cooperative is a self-managed company. Self-managed company uh, means that there are uh, workers who collectively own the company and the means uh, of uh, of uh, production. So they collectively own uh, the, uh, the, the means of production and they make collective decisions. Now imagine a platform, yeah, like I already mentioned the Uber example. Yeah? Uh, imagine that the workers of, Ubers would, uh, of Uber, the drivers would collectively own uh, the, uh, the platform and the algorithms or they would develop their, uh, their, separate, their, their own, uh, their own uh, app uh, and would use it. I mean, there are already examples, uh, I think, uh, uh, platform cooperative called Taxi App, yeah, or there are other uh, platform co cooperatives uh, such as, for example, Fair B and B, which is uh, an alternative uh, to uh, Airbnb, uh, or then there's the music platform Resonate, which is also, I mean, it's an, it's an, uh, it's, uh, an uh, it's an old, uh, uh, owned by uh, by musicians uh, and uh, users. You could say it's a kind of platform cooperative alternative uh, to something like Spotify or uh, Amazon uh, Music, Apple Music, uh, and uh, so on. Uh, then there's the photo platform cooperative Stocksy, or there's the, uh, the uh, cooperation platform Lumio. So there are already examples. And this is a kind of, constituting a kind of alternative economy. And 
The alternative media economy is also nothing new. There's a long history of alternative uh, media. Yeah, uh, if you think, for example, uh, of the alternative press uh, or uh, the uh, the uh, the, uh, the radical press, yeah, uh, or if you uh, think of open television uh, uh, channels, which is quite big in the U.S., uh, not so much uh, in uh, in, uh, in in Europe, or if you think of free radio, yeah, uh, that's big in, in Europe uh, actually, yeah. Uh, and so on, yeah, uh, and of course, uh, radical socialist press, uh, and so on, yeah. However, there is a problem of organizing such non-profit uh, alternatives within capitalism against capitalism, because these uh, cooperatives and these alternative media uh, have a history uh, of being alternative and non-profit. So they are, uh, they are, you could say, they are beautiful, they are alternative, but they are precarious, uh, they, uh, are, they are, are invisible, uh, and they don't have any power. Yeah? So the uh, alternative press, uh, there are not large alternative newspapers in the world who could reach the circulation of the big tabloids uh, and so on. Yeah? So there are alternatives, but the alternatives don't have the capital that is needed in order to become big and powerful and create uh, a, a public sphere that can really challenge the corporate capitalist giants. Yeah? So uh, it's not enough that the alternatives exist because the alternatives must also be powerful so that they can, uh, can question and uh, destroy the power uh, of the dominant players, which they normally can't, yeah? because uh, alternative media uh, sooner or later uh, they disappear yeah? or they stay uh, small. Yeah? Some of them might survive uh, at the medium uh, level, but it's not, I mean, it's not the fault of these individuals running alternative projects. Yeah? But uh, what we can also observe is that these platform cooperatives stay small and precarious. They have problems attracting users. Yeah, So it does not help that we have like a taxi app or a, a music platform or a photo platform that nobody is using yeah? because they all go still to the big corporate platforms. So these are beautiful alternatives, uh, but uh, also idealist projects if nobody is using it. Yeah. So this and, and the, 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 the model of platform cooperatives is facing exactly the same problem that alternative media have faced in their own history. So it looks like it's very difficult to organize uh, alternatives within capitalism against capitalism, yeah? uh, based on the idea of self-managed companies or cooperatives. But there's a second model, yeah, and I'm more in favor of this second model, yeah, which is the model uh, of the public service internet. Yeah? So if you think of what are the alternatives to capitalist media? There are these uh, alternative media that are uh, basically uh, self-managed companies, but are part of civil society. But then there's a second model, and that's the public service media model. Yeah, uh, that is very big in uh, the in Europe. Yeah, with the BBC and a uh, long tradition of 100 years of public service media, mainly in radio uh, and uh, television. Yeah. I mean, in North America, there is also national public radio uh, and uh, and PBS, yeah. But it was created much later than the public service broadcasters in uh, Europe, and it, it has a funding problem, yeah, uh, because there is no uh, proper license fee, uh, whereas the license fee in European countries is a proper funding mechanism. Now, public service media are themselves in a crisis 
it partly has to do with different causes, but partly it has to do with uh, the fact that they are in Europe legally banned from operating properly on the internet. Yeah. So now, but I think, but they are powerful organizations, yeah, and they have money. They have uh, people, journalists, uh, and uh, and others uh, working for them. So I, I and, and there are discussions about how should the future of public service media look like, yeah, and especially right wing parties, movement, politicians. Uh, try to get rid of public service media because uh, public service media journalists are also quite independent and critically uh, minded. And in the news programs, they ask critical questions to everyone, uh, also including right-wing demagogues, uh, which, which they don't like because right-wing demagogues would like to have uh, a media uh, that they can uh, control and that only asks very friendly questions. I mean, that's why also why Donald Trump hates the liberal press, actually. Yeah? But, I mean, the, the asking critical questions, that's actually the task uh, of journalism uh, in, uh, in, uh, in itself. Yeah? But now imagine public service media would expand into the realm of the Internet. Yeah? They would start a, a net, an international network of public service media platforms would, for example, start an alternative to YouTube. Yeah? So let's say BBC... PBS, IRD in uh, Germany, and let's say 20 other uh, public service media organizations uh, in the world, they work together and they have resources. Uh, they establish an alternative to YouTube yeah? uh, and they compete with YouTube then. Yeah? Uh, and a good thing about public service broadcasters is they have massive archives if all the, with content yeah? uh, where they own the copyright. Yeah? Uh, not just news programs, but... Uh, different programs, yeah? uh, if they would digitize all of these radio and television programs, would put it on the platform, uh, on the public service YouTube, would create a, a would give, uh, use a non-commercial non uh, Creative Commons license for this content, then users could be drawn to the platform because they could use the already existing content, they could remix it, could uh, use it in their own podcasts uh, and so on. What the, uh, I mean, also new formats could be developed. Yeah, uh, I mean, public service media they have radio and television broadcasts. Yeah, but you could uh, make interactive and participatory formats. Let's say there's a weekly radio program or television program. Let's say on I don't know uh, new innovations in science. Yeah, uh, and or, or big, 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 uh, big new ideas in science. And there is this program. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then uh, there is audience participation by uh, the program uh, telling uh, users, well, create a one-minute uh, video uh, about uh, what uh, are the next big uh, scientific innovations that the world uh, needs in order to create a better society. Uh, best uh, ideas will be gathered. I mean, you can imagine, like, uh, thousands of people will upload ideas, yeah, and then maybe uh, on a specific uh, uh, point of time uh, in the uh, radio or, 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 or television screen time, uh, the best videos or the best podcast uh, samples uh, could be broadcast uh, on uh, national radio uh, and, uh, and uh, television. Yeah? So a public service internet platform uh, platforms would not mean uh, a competition to traditional broadcasting uh, programs by uh, public service broadcasters, uh, it uh, would mean that uh, that uh, that there would be a, compl a complementarity. Yeah? Uh, and of course, there also funding would be needed. Uh, I mean, the license fee uh, in 
most many countries, not all countries, public service media are funded by license fee. The license fee could be expanded into a media fee that is not just paid. Normally, it's paid by every household, yeah, and that's mandatory. But why should not also large companies pay it? Yeah? Uh, so a license fee, a media fee that is paid by large companies, which would basically be a, a digital uh, service uh, revenue tax, yeah, uh, especially on the large corporations, Google, Apple, Facebook, and so on. So they would be properly taxed, which they, they aren't today. And this money could also be used in order to fund alternative uh, services by public service uh, broadcasters. Yeah? So there are these two models, public service internet platforms and the platform cooperatives. Yeah? And they are not necessarily mutually uh, exclusive because, they are, I mean, nowadays in, in neoliberal management talk and uh, there's uh, lots of talk about public-private partnerships. So what the neoliberals want when they talk about public services is they want to open up public services uh, to the influence of capitalist corporations. Yeah? So when neoliberal uh, people talk about media reform, they have the idea of a public-private partnership. Yeah? They say, well, also the private for-profit media companies they should work together with uh, with the uh, public service uh, broadcasters, should develop joint platforms, um, which normally would then mean uh, that uh, what they want to do, uh, the, the, the private media, is that they want to reuse uh, the content produced by public service broadcasters without having uh, to, uh, to, uh, to pay uh, any uh, license fee uh, for it. But I think there could be a different kind of partnership here, yeah? Uh, which is more an alternative, a socialist idea, an idea of the digital uh, commons, bringing together the idea of the digital commons and the digital uh, and digital public uh, public service media, uh, that there would be a, a, a partnership of platform cooperatives that have already been started, or also new ones, uh, and public service uh, internet uh, platforms and public service uh, media. Because these are two non-profit models, and when these two non-profit models join forces, uh, then they could maybe together challenge the, po the power of the big uh, global digital giants, Facebook, Google, uh, Twitter, uh, Amazon, uh, and uh, so on. So there are potentials for alternatives, but of course, uh, I mean, uh, these are... Uh, there are rudimentary ideas. I mean, there are international networks of uh, scholars, activists, and people active in public service media who have created ideas about how the future of public service media and uh, the internet in general could look like. Yeah, but there are no, there are not many concrete de uh, developments. Yeah, so I think it would have to become become part of a larger political movement that strengthens not just the digital commons and the media commons and uh, the public uh, the public sphere, uh, but that advocates the strengthening of the public interest and public services uh, in uh, general. Yeah? So in the end, I think uh, everywhere we need stronger socialist movements, uh, in the end also socialist uh, parties. Uh, that gain power yeah, uh, and then drive back uh, neoliberalism. I think in the broader population in many countries, uh, the, uh, the insight that neoliberalism has failed is now widely accepted already. Yeah? I mean, nobody would have thought that 10, 15 years ago. Yeah? I mean, nobody would have thought uh, that a person like uh, 20 years ago, nobody would have thought that someone like... Uh, 
Bernie Sanders in uh, the US or Jeremy Corbyn uh, in the UK uh, would have relative uh, success, yeah, at least like in in the primaries uh, in the uh, in the in in the in uh, in the US, Sanders and becoming the Labour Party leader uh, in uh, the UK, uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, by speaking about socialism yeah, and democratic socialism. I mean, when I started my academic career twenty years ago, when I was speaking about socialism, yeah, uh, I was looked at like I'm the devil, actually. Yeah, but things have changed now. Yeah, twenty years later, it's possible to talk in the public about socialism, about the need for socialism. Yeah? And I think, I mean, what I'm interested in is as part of a socialist movement and of socialist parties, what kind of media reforms do we actually need? Yeah? And I think it's very urgent that we, need, that we implement uh, media reforms that challenge the power of the big, uh, of the big uh, digital uh, giants that operate uh, ba based on different capitalist uh, capital uh, capitalist business uh, models uh, and which has resulted in the world becoming uh, a, a place with more that is more unequal than it used to be yeah uh, where there are big uh, problems such as uh, new forms of uh, exploitation that result uh, in precarious work uh, and precarious uh, life the undermining of public services uh, and uh, the welfare state, uh, unequal distribution uh, of, uh, of uh, wealth, the commodification uh, of everything, including our uh, online uh, or our online uh, lives, and in the final instance, really, what this model has led to is an extreme polarization in the public sphere. Yeah, filter bubbles uh, and. Uh, political hatred, so that people can no longer talk to each other, and there are different camps in the political world hating each other. Yeah, I mean, and when you have this, you have this situation in many parts of the of the world. That the political climate is also so polarized that uh, that there is the danger uh, the, of the rise of new fascisms on the one hand, and when you think it to the end, wherever there is nationalism. Uh, right-wing extremism uh, and fascism proliferating and it's growing and it's growing in many parts of the world. Yeah? Then, I mean, what has happened uh, in uh, like more than a uh, hundred years ago, there were like competing nationalisms and imperialisms uh, in the world and the outcome was the First World War. Yeah? So I think if, if things do not change drastically towards the better and things get worse than they, uh, than they are at the moment, then if you think it to the end, uh, the uh, the bottom line is that there will be or might be uh, a new world war, yeah? and of course this might include uh, nuclear destruction uh, and uh, and uh, and so on. Uh, but I think the alternative model, I mean, the alternative model is the strengthening of socialism and the struggle for socialism and the insight that first neoliberal capitalism must be uh, driven back, yeah, uh, and that the alternative to it is not fascist capitalism, but that the alternative is democratic uh, socialism. And I think that strengthens the common and public services uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, in general and is capable of bringing about a better life uh, for, uh, for, 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 for everyone. And as part of such movements yeah, for socialism, uh, I think we have to think about how uh, media reforms uh, that strengthen the democratic public sphere can look like and how a democratic uh, internet yeah, that uh, advances uh, the public sphere and the public interest could look like. Yeah? And I think I, I have some ideas for that, actually. Yeah?
So one thing that's that was very interesting and striking to me uh, was the ideology that something regarding opt-in and opt-out policies was developed back in the 1990s itself. Like people had started talking about what can be used and how it can be used by corporations back in the 1900s itself. Uh, and what's special to me about that is, so you talked about Google and Facebook about how they collect data, but I think we never covered, or I'm, I'm not sure if you did uh, cover Amazon yet. Because when you think about Amazon, what it does is with Alexa and it's a, a couple of other uh, smart devices that, that are in your home right now, what they do is now now they collect information through the vo- through your voice, store it on, on their servers, and then they use it to generate their own ads. And you have to personally go in and opt out of these services. And these opt-out measures have been, have been developed due to struggles in courts and in legal filings where people had to fight for their rights that there needs to be an opt-out service so that we don't have to give our data so that these corporations can keep uh can keep profiting off of us and another thing that you talked about that i really uh that hit uh home was the fact that now that we are consuming this data, especially when you talked about how we, in the 1940s, uh, how someone laid out that the consumption of the radio and consumption of TV, uh, of television, we act as digital labor. So when we post on Facebook, on Twitter, when we go on Google and make searches and make contributions to things like Wikipedia, which show up on each and every page, we see that now not only are we consuming, we're also actively contributing. So much so that the fact that we are contributing is the very reason these corporations run. Tomorrow, just like you said, if you went on a strike, tomorrow if you stop posting on Facebook, if if everyone stopped posting on Facebook, then there is no use of Facebook. There is no use of Twitter. If everybody stops making Google searches, there is no use of Google. So we are running these platforms. We are the digital labor. So it is the exact copy of what was happening back in the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, where these landowners thought that just by giving us the land, they were acting as the owners and they were running these operations. But it was the people who owned, who actually theoretically owned the means of production and who owned whatever was going up and whatever was going down. Here, the same thing is happening, but now they have greater control over it. So it becomes an even an even harder uh, revolution to come up with because, for example, the farmers are giving their land to certain workers and those workers are plowing the field. Similarly, Facebook is giving us a digital platform where we are putting our content. Now, the farmer can, sow, can only control how we sow it. You know what the difference is? Actually, the, the, the farmer, yeah, uh, who, I mean, how, you know, when Marx describes how capitalism was coming about, uh, about uh, it's a process called uh, primitive accumulation. So what happens is that uh, the, the landowners, the, the small farmers, were driven from the land, yeah, uh, and the land became uh, a private property, and they uh, had to flee from the land uh, and were transformed uh, into uh, wage workers. Yeah, so now the farmer actually feels the effect of the primitive uh, accumulation of the land because the land, uh, I mean, was the means of production that they used 
for producing food. Yeah, uh, and so if you no longer have access to food, uh, you feel that actually. Yeah, uh, so now what uh, Facebook and the digital platforms are, are, are doing is a primitive uh, accumulation where they uh, appropriate a data uh, that is produced by the users. However, the difference is between the data and the land, yeah? uh, that the data is invisible. And when you are you when you're creating data, you are not feeling and uh, seeing immediately uh, that uh, that you are uh, that uh, that you are producing data. So you do not see uh, the, the use value uh, that you actually uh, create the data, the met- metadata. Uh, and uh, so on. So lots of, of of the things that these companies are interested in is invisible to the user, whereas it's quite visible and physical uh, that uh, when you no longer have access to your land, well, you don't have access to tomato, uh, to, uh, potatoes, grain, uh, and so on. So you will uh, so you will actually starve. And only in the longer instance, with privacy violations, Cambridge Analytica scandals, uh, and a rise of digital fascism and so on. Uh, the effects become visible, but the problem is that the exploitation of, and that's a problem for political organizing actually, yeah, that the exploitation of digital labor is not immediately experienced as, as such. Yeah? It goes on behind the back of the workers. Yeah? So it's very hard to get the insight that when I'm using Google, I'm a worker, I'm being exploited. Yeah? Lots of people actually contest that actually. Uh, yeah. But uh, as long as this class consciousness, so to speak, of a digital working class uh, is not present, people will not, to a significant extent, question uh, Google, Facebook, uh, and uh, so on. Yeah? So I do think that uh, lots of people are, are critical of the privacy violations uh, and so on, but there is still a way to go that they perceive themselves as a new digital uh, working class, yeah? which is also why we need... Uh, well, uh, digital activists, trade unions uh, that are uh, formed, uh, also left-wing parties, socialist parties, uh, and movement that take the uh, digital media policies uh, and struggles uh, serious uh, and uh, advocate for uh, policies that question the power uh, of digital corporations. I think even now we're seeing, even though there is a rise of these uh, of socialist leaders currently, there's still a need for leaders at e- at an even higher level. So we see that you know the president of the United States is now becoming a, is now a Democrat. Even then, Joe Biden is more of a centrist than he is a leftist. So even even in these scenarios where you ha- do have you they are perceived as left leaning leaders, they are certainly not. When when you would see Bernie Sanders as a leader come up and take take the, that stage that then maybe you can say that there has been a balance uh, a balance has been struck so much so that now you have after a, a very right a far right uh, president now you have a very left leaning president as well and uh, i think like this would be a nice place to uh, to move towards an ending i just wanted to have a brief uh, idea about what you think is going on with or, or, or rather, this is this this may be going off topic, but what do you think is is the relevance of Marxism and uh, communism, socialism, in today's time where the COVID nineteen pandemic has hit? We're all stuck at home, and all we can think about, and all we can start thinking about, is Medicare for all. How people need to have 
centralized medicine they need to have government support they need to have money and uh, food given by the government shelter by the government they need to have a government that that actually actively supports uh, buying of vaccines and uh, making sure that their citizens are okay so how do you think communism has panned out and do you think this will lead to a rise in socialism wherein people are geared towards uh, building communities that are more focused on helping the citizens rather than a very few amount of people at the very top yeah so actually i'm writing a book at the moment about uh covid-19 and the pandemic crisis which will be called communicating covid-19 and i've uh, published an article uh, about covid-19 and everyday life and everyday communication in the journal triple c that uh i'm uh pub- publishing yeah but i think that it's a complex issue the question of how socialism is now related uh to uh, the uh, pandemic i mean uh socialism and socialist theory analyzes capitalism yeah and there's an indirect link between uh capitalism and the pandemic and one has to be careful here because i think one of the biggest dangers at the moment is the fusion of the anti-vaccination uh, movement uh fascists uh, and uh, the right-wing extremist uh, movement uh, and vaccination skeptics yeah uh who advance conspiracy theories yeah and some of these conspiracy theories uh present themselves uh, in an anti-capitalist manner but basic and it's related also to the QAnon movement uh, and other rubbish uh, uh, bullshit you cannot call it differently and one of their uh their conspiracy theories is that Bill Gates wants to obtain world domination of course Bill Gates like founder of uh, Microsoft and has invented and manufactured the virus yeah, uh uh SARS-CoV-2 uh in order to make money uh from uh vaccines yeah and that's complete rubbish and they argue on a determinist logic they argue that bill gates always wants to make money so uh he cannot do anything good uh, and uh when he uh, invests money uh, he's only interested in vaccines uh not in order to uh, fight the pandemic but uh, he's interested in it in order to make more money or i mean it even gets worse like uh he wants to poison uh, people in the third world uh and uh, so on and this kind of anti-capitalism is not a socialist anti-capitalism it's quite similar to nazi ideology uh and anti-semitism that was advanced in the uh in the 1930s because also back then the Jews were the scapegoats yeah uh, and then uh, these conspiracy theories come up with ideas like well Bill Gates uh, is part of the Illuminati uh, and uh, so on so these are anti-semitic and, and George Soros is involved so these are uh, in, by then tendency uh, they they, just, they they follow the logic of anti-semitic uh, conspiracy theories There's not a direct link uh, of uh, capitalism uh, and COVID-19. There's an indirect link, yeah, uh, because agricultural capitalism and agro businesses uh, have advanced deforestation uh, in different parts of forests, yeah, uh, and rainforests uh, in the world in order to make uh, uh, to turn the uh the uh the, the the land into means of uh production for uh making uh profits yeah and this has uh also uh also destroyed the habitat for wild animals uh, including the bat yeah so the bat has come in many parts of the world into closer contact with human beings uh which has made it more likely that there's a spillover uh of uh, diseases uh from animals Uh, to uh, humans yeah and marxist uh, analysts 
like Andreas Malm or John Bellamy uh, Foster are pointing out this indirect link yeah, between deforestation, agribusinesses and the creation of the pandemic. Yeah? Uh, so that's, for, that's, a, that's a socialist uh, analysis, uh, you could say. Yeah? The question is then, what is a socialist response to, uh, to the uh, pandemic? Yeah? Uh, and I think uh, you mentioned it already. What we can, when, what we can see is uh, when you observe the different countries and this pandemic and the, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a tragedy for humanity. Yeah? Uh, so many people have, all, uh, have already died uh, from the uh, pandemic. I think it's also an ideology to think, well, it's just a mild flu, uh, actually, uh, and so on. It's not. I mean, it's multiple times more dangerous than the seasonal uh, flu. But those people who are especially unprotected yeah, are, are partly also uh, workers who work uh, on the uh, on the front line and who cannot work from home, especially uh, blue-collar uh, collar, uh, workers. I mean, just a simple example uh, is that the plumber cannot do his work uh, over uh, over, uh, over, uh, over the uh, internet uh, when your when your heating uh, is uh, broken? He has to come uh, into your house and has to earn uh, also a living uh, in uh, in this way. And then we can observe that countries where the healthcare system has been extremely privatized or defunded, yeah, on the one hand, uh, they have been massively affected by uh, the pandemic and they also tend to have the highest, um, highest amount uh, of people dying from the pandemic yeah? because uh, if they lack uh, like intensive care beds and they have a low uh, number of intensive care beds per 100,000 uh, in, uh, inhabitants, uh, then that's, uh, that's, a, that's a massive crisis. Yeah? Or if you don't have uh, health insurance like uh, tens of millions of people have uh, in the U in the US, then you catch the disease, yeah, but it develops uh, in a, in a terrible way. Well, then you are then you are dying basically uh, for, uh, uh, from it, yeah. So that's the one thing we can observe. So that neoliberalism uh, and where neoliberalism has been uh, implemented most radically, including in the US and in the UK, uh, you have high uh, number of uh, of casualties and and victims uh, of the uh, pandemic. At the same time, we can also observe that in countries where there are uh, far-right uh, political leaders, uh, including Donald Trump uh, in the US, uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, and Boris Johnson uh, in, uh, in uh, the United Kingdom, and plus uh, other countries, uh, the casualties have also been uh, very high uh, because uh, these uh, leaders, uh, on the one hand, seem to have at least for parts of the time, uh, uh, been influenced by conspiracy theories. They have not; they've just thought it's a mild flu, yeah, or uh, they were uh, willing uh, to practice a kind of new social Darwinism where you don't implement the proper shutdown and lockdown of society because they wanted to protect business interests. They did not want to uh, to close down uh, business uh, bus uh, businesses because, of course, this means uh, that uh, that. Uh, no profits can be made during uh, the lockdown. So they wanted to keep everything open as long as possible. Uh, and of course, this means uh, rising uh, death rates uh, and uh, so on. So this lot, I mean, that's a socialist insight that when capitalist business interests are brought before human interests, then more people are dying in a pandemic, which, however, at the same time, 
shows us that this logic that, that uh, profits and businesses and economic growth uh, of the capitalist economy should be put first. When this is done, in, this logic prevails in a pandemic, then more people are dying, and it shows the contradiction of capitalism and uh, and 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 uh, and human interests. Yeah, and I think this becomes very evident in the. Uh, pandemic yeah? and uh, it uh, and uh, on the, this contradiction between human interests and capitalist uh, in, uh, in, uh, interests yeah? and it also shows that uh, the pandemic that we need uh, publicly funded uh, healthcare systems yeah uh, where uh, where uh, there is a free access for everyone uh, and a system that is funded out of general taxation, uh, including uh, capital taxation. Yeah? And I mean, uh, the, the crisis shows most drastically the need for a democratic socialism that first and foremost strengthens public services and the welfare state. Yeah, And I think, I mean, we don't know how societies will look like in five years, 10 years, uh, and so on. But when the pandemic is over, let's, let's hope that will be soon. And uh, let's hope that uh, lots of people get vaccinated throughout uh, the world so that uh, some kind of herd immunity can be reached. Let's assume in like one year, two years, the pandemic is over. We societies turn back to some kind of uh, normality. Uh, then how will how will uh, how will politics look like? I think it will be easier to make the argument that public services and especially the healthcare system need to be publicly funded. Yeah, uh, and I mean what is also happening now is there are massive debts accruing uh, of national economies because of course the shutdown yeah uh, requires some form of compensation uh, payments. How do states do that? Well, uh, uh, they have to take. Uh, loans and their debts. So you know, there will be, uh, when we return to some form of political normality, there will be a big question about, well, uh, who is uh, who is paying the bill actually? Yeah, who is uh, who who, uh, who 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 who's who's paying the taxes that need to be increased in order uh, to uh, lower the debt the debts uh, of uh, of a national. Uh, uh, of, of, of nation states, yeah, and I think this will be in the next couple of years. I think this will be a key struggle, basically. And I think for the socialists and for the left uh, and the basically the social democrats of the world, I think it will be easier to make the argument that the rich and large corporations should pay the tax bill, yeah, because when there was when there was the two thousand eight. Uh, world economic crisis, what happened was there was a bailout of the big company, companies uh, and uh, the big banks, yeah, uh, the oil companies yeah, and the uh, car uh, manufacturers, uh, the banks, insurances, uh, and so on. Uh, and there was an increase of, of debt, yeah, of state debt, uh, but it was uh, the, uh, and then uh, austerity measures that were harming the working class and that resulted in more privatization of Healthcare, education, uh, housing, uh, and so on, were the effect in uh, in many countries. So in the end, the working class, yeah, was paying the bill actually by uh, having lower wages, worse living conditions, uh, worse access to public services, uh, and so on. 
And of course, there will be forces in the next couple of years that will try the same. They will try to make the working class pay. They will use all sorts of ideological uh, strategies in order to scapegoat particular groups in society uh, for the pandemic uh, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and, and so on. They will do everything uh, in order to keep up uh, in, uh, the capitalism as such uh, and uh, the neoliberal model. And the task for the left is then, uh, well, to make the argument for capital taxation, for uh, redistribution, uh, for uh, minimum wages, for the introduction uh, of uh, a guaranteed basic income that is funded out of uh, capital taxation, the increase uh, of taxes for uh, uh, large uh, transnational uh, corporations uh, and so on. Yeah? So it will be a, a new phase of intensive class struggle, but the class struggle will be focused on the question of who pays the debt, yeah? uh, who pays more taxes. So without a doubt, there will be uh, taxes will be raised, but for whom will they be uh, will they uh, be raised? So it will be a struggle about uh, distribution, basically, uh, of the wealth and income uh, in, uh, in 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 uh, in, uh, in societies. And as always, the outcomes of these struggles are. Uh, uncertain, and there will be different forces in these struggles. Yeah, there will be the classical neoliberals, yeah, who, however, now have problems making the arguments. There will be uh, a new social democracy uh, playing a, a role here. Basically, socialists, yeah, who I think have strong arguments actually for uh, arguing for the uh, strengthening of public services, uh, uh, cap increasing ta capital taxation, uh, and so on. Yeah. There will be the green movement yeah, that will argue for some kind of green capitalism, basically, yeah, uh, saying yeah we will we need to make investments, a, a green new deal, uh, and, uh, and and uh, and and so on. But they want to create a different form of capitalism, yeah, green uh, capitalism. And then there will be the fascist and right wing uh, extremist uh, forces that will try to. Uh, scapegoat uh, everyone yeah, uh, for the pandemic, for the crisis, uh, the immigrants, they will say the uh, globalization has gone too far, we need to strengthen uh, the nation state uh, and, uh, and, 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 uh, and so on. So they want to implement basically an authoritarian model and they want to abolish uh, democracy. So I think the fascist and right-wing extremist forces are the most dangerous forces. I think the neoliberal forces will uh, anyway be uh, be uh, weakened. Yeah, uh, the green uh, parties and green movements will play some uh, kind uh, of a uh, role. But you know, in the end, uh, we are reminded of, and that's the bottom line for the future uh, in after after uh, post COVID nineteen. In the end, we are reminded of what Rosa Luxemburg, uh, the German uh, socialist uh, theorist and activist, uh, was saying that in such situations of profound crisis. Basically, we have two options, socialism or barbarism. Yeah? And I think post-COVID-19, this option exactly, these two options exactly will play themselves out. Yeah? Uh, either we will have a strengthening of democratic socialism or society and humanity and everything might go down the toilet, actually, yeah? uh, after, the, uh, after the crisis. Yeah? So this barbarism, I think, will be a, a new fascism or a new... Uh, World War uh, and so on. Yeah, so it will be basically. I think it will be uh, a struggle between uh, fascism and socialism. Yeah, or some form of barbarism and the socialist uh, alternative. Yeah, and what we can do is 
human beings actually uh, is to to organize and support movements, leaders, yeah, uh, ideas uh, that make it more likely that uh, the socialist alternative uh, will uh, prevail. So if you have not been a socialist thus far, then it's more than time to become uh, a socialist uh, and to become politically active in socialist movements in order to save humanity. If you think about it, even after the pandemic uh, in the 1900s, there was a huge change in the in how people perceived their governments and how people perceived uh, democracies. And I think a similar change might be coming uh, after this pandemic as well. It was lovely talking to you. Uh, and I hope we get a chance to talk again sometime in the future. Uh, I'll keep listening to your podcast. And I hope everyone on this show who have listened thus far, uh, keep listening to uh, keep listening to this podcast and your podcast as well. You can find his podcast. I'll, I'll link it in, my, uh, in the description box under this uh, episode. Thank you so much for being here again. It was lovely talking to you.